0: This is mission.org. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to marketing trends and
1: the Leads Art Week. Remember, always be closing.
0: Hello and welcome to marketing trends. This is producer Ben Wilson. Today's episode features an interview with Justin Schreiber. Vice President of Marketing for LinkedIn Sales and Marketing Solutions. Justin has worked in tech marketing and product management for the last two decades. In addition to his time at LinkedIn, has spent time working for great tech companies like Aptio and Oracle. On this episode, Justin discusses how sales and marketing are starting to converge and how marketers can adjust to that change. He also talks about how to build trust with your audience and create great content. Enjoy.
2: Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce Pardot, B2B marketing automation on the world's number one CRM. Are you ready to take your B2B marketing to new heights? With Pardot, marketers can find and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast, or click on the link in our show notes.
3: Welcome
1: to Marketing Trends. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at The Mission. We are in an undisclosed location. I guess we can disclose the location. I think we can
3: disclose the location.
1: We're LinkedIn here in downtown sunny San Francisco. And to my right, Lauren Vaccarello, what's going on?
3: Not much. Thank you, Justin, for, for having us to your office today.
1: Absolutely. Glad to have you guys here. So, Justin, we want to get into all things... Your background. Uh, we want to talk about the convergence of sales and marketing, the types of tools that LinkedIn has provided for a long time now to both marketers and salespeople alike. We'll we'll touch into a little bit about trust. Uh, it's something we've talked about a bunch, you know, here on marketing trends and how important that is for marketers to be able to engage the right way. So first, let's get into it. Share a little bit about your background. How'd you get into marketing?
0: Boy, it was, uh, uh, to steal a lyric, a long and winding road, (laughs) but I am certainly happy that I'm here. I actually started off in products way back 20 years ago, joined Siebel and I was building product for their SFA, uh, Salesforce automation platform, had a great time doing that. And Found myself talking to customers a lot about the products that I was building and eventually found my way into product marketing and then from there marketing. I think the the common thread is being able to engage with audiences, with customers, understand their pain and figure out that the solutions
1: are going to help them out. Last episode, actually, not last episode to the listener, but uh, in a previous episode, Lauren, um, <laughs> Lauren made a reference, offhanded reference, and was like, No, this is like a SIBO implementation. <laughs> and and we we all laughed, we're like, and, I don't think I think that might go over a few people's heads.
3: And then we realized I might have dated myself in the number yes, of years I've been going old valley. school, it's yeah. like, but I was trying to articulate, uh, never mind, guys, going old ne- school, never mind, but gotta, it's
0: gotta go back to the classics,
3: you do, and it's. It's nice to know someone else who was sort of the early SFA world, and I worked at I started at Salesforce about ten years ago, where Siebel and SFA were things you actually spent a lot of time thinking about, and then the world changes and evolves.
0: I, I don't know how deep we're going to get into all of my uh, career mistakes and fumbles, but I remember being at Siebel and one of my colleagues coming up saying. Justin, you got to check this, this company out. It is awesome. It's called salesforce.com <laughs> and it is the future. And this was when Siebel was like a billion plus yeah. and Salesforce was literally barely a blip on the radar. And I blew him off and the rest is history.
3: You, you don't know what you don't know, <laughs> but clearly now, uh, I- now that you're at at linkedin, you you definitely, yeah, I definitely feel found I feel like with
0: with the LinkedIn move, I've been able to come back and uh, find my way into a great spot again.
3: It is in the um knock on wood. There's no shortage of opportunities right now. And it's why I love being in tech and being in marketing because there's so much new exciting technology happening. There's so many interesting places to go. and you know careers are long.
1: Yes. Yes, indeed. So tell us about your kind of uh, scope of roles and responsibilities here at LinkedIn right now. So we have
0: multiple solutions that we deliver to help customers engage and, and grow their businesses. I'm responsible for marketing for our sales solutions business and for our marketing solutions business.
3: And can we spend a little bit of time geeking out on how great LinkedIn sales and marketing products are that I... You can
0: spend as much time as you want about that.
3: (laughs) I'm going to caveat for, you know, my 30 second regular tangent in every episode of, you know, having been a a buyer and a marketing buyer since Siebel. Ian and I were talking before, before the episode about how publishing has changed and how marketers buy has changed. And I remember when I first started buying LinkedIn marketing products the CPMs were so much higher than everything else but the quality was so much better yeah. your degree of targeting in linkedin was one of the first places you could really buy targeted advertising and as a b2b buyer it was like the the holy grail in so many ways and they how do i i know exactly who my customers are how do i get in front of them and has just become table stakes for the marketer and then you have linkedin sales solutions which If you're a seller and you're not using LinkedIn Sales Navigator, I don't know, you maybe should change companies, you may be doing something wrong, but I just, I find it fascinating of how you build products and market products to a point that the potential buyer doesn't know a world where this doesn't exist, and then how you continue to be innovative with marketing where you have almost total market saturation.
0: So there are different opportunities, different challenges in our marketing business and in our sales business. From a marketing perspective, we, I believe, occupy a very unique space. Mm -hmm. We have uh, amassed an incredible number of members. They trust us. First and foremost, we want to make sure that we respect who they are and what they have shared with us. But we also are constantly figuring out ways that we can create value for them. What they share with us allows us to offer up companies and brands an incredible resource in terms of the ability to target audiences that are really relevant. And I think one of the secrets to success that LinkedIn has been able to offer is the ability to find that relevant group of people, reach out to them in an appropriate, non-invasive way, and really convey value. One of the challenges we face in that business is obviously there are some juggernauts out there, juggernauts out there on social media that are really grooming the marketer to think about we call them vanity metrics, mm-hmm. clicks, Totally, you know, the size of the audience. Completely. And you mentioned that our CPMs are higher. But at the end of the day, if you look at the actual leads that we're yeah. generating and the revenue, the ROI is very strong.
3: A hundred percent. And this is what and with the vanity metrics that kill me are as a as a marketer, you should be focused on, and I'm going to steal this and not quote who I'm stealing this from because it's my favorite phrase is, marketers should care about metrics you can buy a beer with. I can't buy a beer with clicks. I can't buy a beer with impressions. <laughs> uh-huh. I get closer with leads. I can definitely do it with revenue. And I've had people on my team even go, say, you know, well, the CPM is cheaper. You get more clicks. You get more impressions. And fundamentally- It doesn't matter Um, if you're running a brand campaign, maybe, but throwaway impressions don't matter. What matters is the actual results you're getting and driving. So fundamentally, I don't care how much the CPM is. I care about, am I going to get the right high quality lead that's going to convert and have the best ROI for the business? You can give me all the cheap clicks you want, but that's really not going to sort of move marketing forward. And if marketing wants to be thought of as a, a, a revenue center versus a cost center, this is how marketers need to start thinking.
1: Absolutely. Who said
3: that? <laughs> what was this quote? I'm not, uh, <laughs> uh, he'll ping me later and yell at me for stealing this quote, but I'm going I'm to claim oh, it you on this podcast. Like
1: t- oh, you want to uh, take action on it? Metrics you can buy a beer with. There's actually a, uh, a common phrase, which is, if you're the first person to say it on Marketing Trends, it is now your phrase. Thank so, you, oh. thank you. Uh, thank congratulations. You can attribution, <laughs> attribution, congratulations. attribution
3: Lauren. Sorry, Craig, you'll yell at me later for that. <laughs>
1: um, yes. Yeah, so... I think it's really interesting that you see, you look into two different sides of things. You look into sales tools and marketing tools. There's obviously this convergence of sales and marketing happening specifically as you look to products that are self-serve. How do you see these two things, these two uh, roads converging in the woods here? And also like, what is this look like in terms of, you know, marketing carrying numbers, carrying a number themselves instead of sharing it or that role of, you know, the head of sales and head of marketing who sometimes are joined at the hip, sometimes aren't really being joined at the hip with kind of a shared shared number.
0: A couple of interesting data points just to support the fact that sales and marketing are converging. We obviously have access to information about people's titles. And what we find really interesting is to look at how, the shifts or the trends in titles what people call themselves we took a look at the chief revenue officer title and since 2015 people calling themselves chief revenue officers is up by 80% yeah it makes wow. sense yep. so clearly this is this is a movement i just read an interesting survey by mckinsey uh, it was actually 2017 they went out and talked to buyers and asked them do you want to deal with a sales professional or do you want to go self-serve? And at least in reorder scenarios, 85 plus percent said, we just want to go self-serve. I think that we live in an era where people are very facile with technology and know what they want and know how to use technology to get there, feels more efficient and Mm -hmm. more more targeted. Obviously marketing, that's that's the marketer's domain. So more and more marketers are shifting the mindset from top of funnel, mid funnel, to a full end to end buyer experience and as they're doing that they're assuming more responsibility for
1: delivering revenue. I mean, I would I would also say that now marketers have more rope than ever to hang themselves with. Like yeah. I mean, you can actually in a in in an episode that we recorded with Paul from Creative Market, he was talking about just like how you can write marketing copy that's so good and you get so many clicks and you pay for all those clicks and then you realize like none of the people are actually converting. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Like I'm writing too good a copy, right? Like you A-B test yourself into this super broad funnel and you're like, hey, we just drove, you know, 2 million people to our website. None of those people convert. So now it's like, you have to dial that back and be like, what are actually the words that we need to be speaking to these people? What are the highly technical words? And there's so many self-serve options now, especially with marketing, that you can dump a lot of money into and especially small businesses Mm -hmm. that can dump money into that have no clue what they're doing. Yeah, I'll give you a great
0: example of that. We we have a client and they deliver a product and the product is very attractive to students. Mm-hmm. So they went out, to your point, built this amazing campaign, saw all of these clicks, only to find out that these were non-paying students. Yeah. Yeah. And it completely blew up their marketing budget. Came to LinkedIn and said, we need to fix the problem. We can help them identify the sweet spot, those that are going to come pay for the services. Yeah and create a much more set of germane results based on what they're looking for.
3: I love that example. And it's the, how we get marketers to th- also think about what are the right metrics and what should we really be thinking about and caring about? Because to your point, if they're going to be not paying students. It looks great at first, but it actually doesn't deliver on, on business value. And mm-hmm. as, as marketers, and I think self-service, especially on the B2B side is getting really interesting because as a B2B marketer we never had that degree of control because you know you want to focus on performance and you want to focus on revenue but it's someone else who closes the deal so you can do everything right but maybe the SDR who followed up with that lead is brand new and didn't know what to do and the deal was lost and you you lose that bit of control and with self serve it's you think you're good. You think you know who the audience is, what they need. Now you get that little bit of e-commerce control where, okay, well, now they're going to convert online, and let's see if they if they actually do it.
0: Yeah, two two metrics that we spend a lot of time with. One is CAC, uh, customer acquisition cost, yep. and then the other is LTV.
3: Yep, and we yep. think
0: a lot about segmenting our audiences based on LTV. Yes, we know exactly who the prime targets are, and then we determine what's the CAC that we need in Mm -hmm. order to profitably service these customers. And with the marketing channels that you now have access Mm -hmm. to, you can say, I'm going to go after this segment and not that segment because of the economics that get involved in it.
3: I I love that. And I'd love to talk more about the whole concept of LTV. And I'm starting to see marketers and businesses shift away from How do we drive ARR and net new revenue to how do we actually drive lifetime value? Because Mm -hmm. you can spend all this money. It looks great from a a year one perspective, but then you assume there's no churn and you happen to, for example, go after a segment where churn is three or four times higher. So it looks good, but.
1: Yeah. So how do you calculate that? Because, I mean, this is a this is a problem we were talking earlier about about publishing off the air. One of the huge problems that publishers face is that. How do you determine the value of your audience? So if you're saying, hey, to rent this space in front of our audience for X amount of dollars, but that those people potentially have a high lifetime value is a really problematic negotiation for both sides because neither side really knows uh, and kind of market dictates a price. But that may or may not be right, especially with like the new ways that things are happening. I mean, LinkedIn reaches millions, hundreds of millions of people. How do you look at lifetime value?
0: on the marketing side of the business we're able to determine or or anticipate what the spend is over a year multiple year period and fortunately we're we're relatively sophisticated in terms of our look-alike modeling so as a new customer comes in based on the characteristics that they exhibit we can assign an ltv to them we then after we've made that initial assumption go back in time and look at how accurate we were. And we're constantly adjusting those models. Based on that, we then build a series of propensity models that say, all right, this segment is worth about this much. What are the propensity models and and where are they pushing us in terms of other accounts?
3: Awesome. Are you building how are you building the propensity models? Is it a lot of regression analysis? Like how if someone says, I want to do that, where do they start?
0: There are definitely different layers of sophistication that you can go to. I I must say that working at LinkedIn has been a phenomenal experience just in terms of the caliber of talent that we bring to the table. We invest a lot in data science. Mm -hmm. We place a premium on that. It's built into our product, but it's also built into the way that we do business. And so, you know, you mentioned regression analysis. There are, are also another a number of data science models that we're using in order to build those propensity models. I'm also though sympathetic to a small or a mid-sized business that may not have access to those kinds of tools or those kinds of resources. I would argue that even having some kind of baseline model where you're looking at identifiable characteristics that you can flag. Mm-hmm. And those could come from LinkedIn. They could come from other public sources. And starting with that and iterating, I think the iteration is the key yeah. to building a strong model.
3: I, uh, no, I, I completely, completely agree with you around that. One of the things we had looked at when I, um, at box was this whole idea of customer health, for example. So getting to the idea of lifetime value, one piece was what are signs that indicate sort of customer health? Mm. So I can say, If a customer does X, Y, or Z, they are a healthier looking customer. So the likelihood of turning goes down. And even at um, Salesforce, a number of years ago, we started to look at what actions and behaviors led to product stickiness. And by identifying stickiness, it was a really rough way of saying, if this makes a product sticky, they won't go away. How do we just make the product stickier? Which I think now eventually has evolved people thinking into the way you track stickiness, the way you track health and outcome of all of this is is lifetime value. And a lot of that was done without a ton of analysis. It was just picking up the bits and pieces and then pointing everyone in the right direction.
1: Yep. Switching gears to to trust. We all know, I mean, Seth Godin writes about this like Mm -hmm. all the time. And I think he has some of the best work about trust. It's so important in how we engage people. I think one of the true challenges that LinkedIn faces as a consumer of LinkedIn that somebody who's on all the time is that marketing is about right place, right time. So if you are, you know, on a network for a specific reason, is that the right place, right time? How do you build trust at LinkedIn and demonstrate value kind of throughout the process to uh, to both sides?
0: Before I hit that point, I just want to underscore the prominence that trust now plays both from a marketing perspective and a sales perspective. We do an annual report called State of Sales. It spans sellers, marketers, and buyers. And over the past several years, we've been looking at sentiment associated with engaging with with sellers and with marketers. What we found is that trust constantly comes to the top of the list. What's interesting, not just on the side of buyers, whom you would expect – Would want trust, but also sellers are acknowledging that. When we went out and asked sales teams, what is the most important attribute that you can deliver? It wasn't show value, be consultative. It was, I need to show trust to the buyers. And then with buyers, over 51% said that trust was the top attribute they looked for. It was even more important than, can I get the best price? Can I get the best product? More and more, especially in complex B2B sales, that idea that I need to be able to trust or partner with the individual trumps
1: all other factors that get involved. Yeah. I mean, it totally makes sense. And I think that ultimately that is the one piece of the relationship that is really, really hard to build and self-serve. Like if you are, if you have a really good sales team that builds a lot of trust, that is the person that, the human being that can answer the phone when somebody needs something. And it might not just be something for your product, like literally just need something. If you're the person who they go to, if you're that salesperson, you're gonna win their trust. It's something that's hard to build on self-serve.
3: And then how that's a great point. And how Thanksgiving. You're welcome. You're welcome. How do you see building building trust in a self-serve environment? Is it the role of brand? Is it something else? How do you do it? Where do you see that evolving?
0: You're right it's certainly different than when you're dealing with someone face to face but I would argue it's just as important if not more important. Oh, because yeah. now now you can't actually assess that individual that you're talking to. So we think a lot about trust in a self-serve environment as well. When we talk about our marketing solutions, we believe that there are three factors that come to the fore that really differentiate what we're offering. Number one is the audience that we've built. You have an audience of over 610 million professionals in a professional mindset. Number two is the environment that we've created, which is business oriented. And number three is the way that we can drive engagement, not just by building awareness or mid funnel lead generation, but all the way through to consummating sales. So focusing on that environment idea for a minute, we have made. Strategic moves that in the short term have not benefited LinkedIn. We recently said we're not accepting any political ads. Mm -hmm. That was a revenue stream that we cut off. The reason that we did that, though, is we said that doesn't really fit with our core focus, which is bring a professional mindset. And so we're willing to forego that revenue because we want to create an environment where people can come and engage on professional issues. We're very conscientious about the kinds of engagement that happen on the platform. And what we love is that it's also to some extent self-policing. You'll frequently see members raise their hand and say, hey, not appropriate for LinkedIn. Take it someplace else. Mm -hmm. But those are just two examples of how we are really investing in the environment to create a place where you can come and feel
1: that there's an element of trust there. How much do you think, and this isn't meant to be a gotcha question, so I don't want it to feel that way, but Mm -hmm. how much do you think, like, time professionals should be spending on LinkedIn? Because I think that there is this amount of, you know, as a salesperson and as a marketer, there's so much rich data and information on LinkedIn about the people. Like you see their actual behaviors, you see the things that they're sharing and liking the things that they're interested in. And ultimately like, it allows you to be a more empathetic person to build trust faster and all that sort of stuff. But there's kind of the other side of that where it's like, I'm sure you have, all sorts of information on like how much time buyers are spending on and off the platform. And I guess I, I, I shouldn't say like, how much time should the average person spend on how much time should the marketer spend on LinkedIn looking for things like that?
0: I think it does start with the members though, because that's the audience that the marketer is going after. And I could obviously throw a number out and say, this is how much time I think you should spend there really at the end of the day, that doesn't matter. What matters is how much time do members feel like they should spend on LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. What we're excited about, we have, we've actually stopped really focusing on sheer volume. We have a lot of members on the platform now, but what we really care about are engaged members coming back on a consistent basis and spending quality time on the platform. And what we've seen is that engaged quality members is up 50% year over year. And that's because of some very concerted efforts that we've made on our side. One of the things we focused on is shifting away from this idea that you come to LinkedIn to find a job. You come to LinkedIn to connect with that one person that you need to open a door. And we've really tried to focus on giving you the information that you need to be on top of your game. So we now hear people will say for professional news, I come to LinkedIn every morning because I find that's where I'm going to get not only the news, but the commentary that I need to really show up at work effectively. And so it's maneuvers like that, that are really helping us to see greater engagement. If we have an engaged audience that is in the domain that you care about as a marketer, you're absolutely going to want to be spending a lot of time focusing on that.
3: And I, I think a lot of that for me, goes back to the the focus on driving value and adding value because a lot of what you've described is how do I create this really high quality environment for the users who go to LinkedIn? How are they highly engaged? And they're highly engaged because you're providing access to content and information that is highly valuable, makes them more effective at their job, more effective at their day and it's just this interesting thread that keeps coming up the more and more uh, marketing leaders we talk to of if you start with the user and providing value to the user and deeply know what value you can provide, all of these other good things start to happen and start to stem from that. And getting 50% more engaged users on a platform of 610 million people is extremely significant.
0: That's right. And indirectly, as they engage on the platform, they're telling you as a marketer what they care about.
3: Absolutely. If I'm engaging
0: with this content. If I'm talking to these people, if I'm making these comments, guess what? I'm interested in this topic. It's probably appropriate to come and talk to me as a company about that. So the, the, the beauty here is there's an ecosystem. The more, the better job we do at engaging the members, the easier it is for marketers to come and engage with them as well.
3: Absolutely. And then as a, a marketer and as a buyer, I'm now getting access to a better pool of potential leads that are paying more attention or more engaged. I can target them better. And then ultimately I'm probably willing to spend more or buy more, or do more because there's more to do. And my see it, my customer lifetime value is only going to go up over time because I'm getting more and more out of it as the buyer And we're doing at the same time where the user is actually really happy with how all of this is, is working out.
1: That's right. How do you feel about content as it relates to the ecosystem on LinkedIn? Because it seems like There is a certain level of sharing that happens of like thought leadership of things like that, obviously with like things like, um, you know, LinkedIn publishing and, and different sort of things that are kind of accelerating some of those topics spreading across LinkedIn in a quick way. I think a lot of people go there to discover things about their industry, about their buyers, about all this sort of stuff. Is there some way that like content creation and discovery on LinkedIn will shift as marketers can be able to use that in a more effective way?
0: Content is extremely important. I think that the level of play is constantly elevating as the audiences become more sophisticated mm-hmm. and are able to distinguish between a beautiful, glossy piece that's been put together really to a large extent as a vanity piece and something that has really hard-hitting and, and substantive perspectives that are offered. So we see, no surprise, that the content that really resonates is that content that is thoughtful. People have invested in it. It might be a primary piece of research that it's featuring. It might be reaching out to an expert and pulling their point of view in. The other thing that is really on fire right now is video. Yeah. Mm. What I love about video is that audiences really want authenticity. And in many cases, the video that is the most impactful is that iPhone that got pulled out in a special moment to capture something and the audience feels like they're right there. Mm -hmm. There's certainly a place for the high production quality, um, and you're always going to see that. But I love the fact that now there's a democratization where real quality, meaning the substance of the content, wins
1: out over high production value. I'll push back a little bit on that with the fact that the right people who do that do a really good job at it. And you've seen this with like certain people who have kind of that perspective of like those, those important moments or those type of really engaging, insightful thoughts. I think the other side of that is people trying to play the algorithm with selfie videos. And again, I have nothing against that. Do your, do your thing, live your best life, you know, <laughs> let your freak flag fly. But I think that there's a level of self-policing that the market will continue to do of people that are just getting on there, getting on a video and be like, Hey, what's up everyone. And like, Dude, it's been thirty-five seconds. You haven't actually said a word yet. Yeah, um, stuff like that, where it's like the long tail of that will like weed out, and the people who are truly good at it, who like might seem amateur or might be amateurs at creating content, who are actually exceptional. I mean, you know, every people talk about like you know Gary V does this stuff all the time, like walking through airports and all that sort of stuff. You know, but that sort of thing, where it's like there's a certain level of consistency and authenticity to t- content like that. But I think that there is a definite downside of like you know, the random person who's doing selfie videos every day that doesn't actually substantially create something meaningful.
0: And hopefully that gets weeded out. As you look at the amount of engagement with those kinds of videos, I think they're going to continue to go down. There's certainly a bit of a cat and mouse game as people try to uh, reverse engineer the algorithms. Mm -hmm. Simultaneously, though, our team is very cognizant of that and is modifying the algorithms accordingly. So, What was the, the, like, bro
1: poems or did you... Did you ever see this the the like tree Did you ever see this? Somewhere? No, okay, not the so target audience. This was this thing. So basically, the algorithm was such that, and I I don't I'm not saying that this is the LinkedIn stance, this is the E stance. Was something along the lines of like basically long form, non linked, single sentence posts did really 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 well. And so it was, ended up being called bro-a-tree, which is hilarious. But it was like this like today was the worst day. I talked to a customer. It was close to a three million dollar deal. It didn't happen. The reason, why, and then it's like line after line after line mm-hmm. after line, and these got like huge engagement, and uh, and then just like that they no longer started getting. Suddenly engagement. they became deprecated. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But stuff like that is really interesting because it's like, you know, kind of those classic growth hacks where it's like you're just trying to play the algorithm for a day and not build something. And that's a great example
0: of the, the balance. We want to we want to provide value to our members we want to do it in a way that enfranchises everyone that has a voice and something to say across 610 million members. So it is a dance between technology and human judgment. Mm-hmm. And we're constantly refining that.
3: It's changing topics a little bit. I'd love to hear about your favorite campaign that you've ever worked on.
0: I was, I'll actually share a campaign. I was the recipient. Ooh. I was on the recipient Ooh. end. I like it. I, I think that I'm pretty typical in that, I get very excited when I see these campaign emails come into my inbox because I just delete them without having to read them. <laughs> and you know, when you log into your email in the morning and you see a hundred emails waiting for you, it feels so good to just like go through and knock out the ones that are irrelevant. And literally that's how I treat email campaigns at this point. It's, it's a game that I play. Just get them off it's the like list. Whack-a-mole. It's like yeah. whack-a-mole. It's like whack-a-mole. And so, and I think more and more people are less tolerant of just the cold email. ABM, not a surprise, Mm -hmm. is really gaining traction and getting more and more sophisticated. So I was the recipient of an ABM campaign. Mm. First element of it, there was a direct mailer on my desk. It had some swag associated with the company, which was appropriate for me. They Mm -hmm. did a great job of researching what I was all about. They know I like to ski. They know I like to bike. They totally nailed the direct mail piece that they sent out to me. The second thing that they did was a a North Face jacket. Oh, that's cool. And I recognize that like everybody's not going to get a North Face
1: jacket, Mm -hmm. but this comes back to the CAC and the LTV conversation that you have. And we we talked about this. I mean, we literally talked about this exact thing. Where like, you're going to sit there and spend, you know, $170 on a Facebook ads campaign. You could just send, like, I don't know if we said a jacket, but it was something like that. Like you could just send a jacket to your prospect and Mm. you're going to get their attention more than this Right. Facebook campaign. It
0: had a tasteful logo on it. Mm-hmm. I went around, I showed everybody in my office. Obviously, I'm into direct mail, so I showed my direct mail team. You guys can nice. kind of check this out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How many impressions are they getting against people that really matter? They followed up with an executive whom I knew, mm-hmm. and they figured out that connection on LinkedIn And that individual reached out to me and said, hey, I just wanted to follow up. We got some great stuff going on. We would love to make the connection. Mm -hmm. And then from there, I started to get a series of emails with content, some of which were directly related to LinkedIn. So you have the direct mailer, you have the personal touch, and you have content all tailored. I ended up meeting with a number of executives from that particular company. Now, that might sound like a lot of work unfortunately, we live in a world where that's what it takes. And the companies that are willing to invest like that are going to get the deals at the end of the day.
3: And I couldn't agree with you more. It's it's not about volume. You can get volume cheaply, but you're not going to get anything coming out the other side. Or you can say, this is exactly who I want to talk to. There is a big enough financial upside because I'm focused on CAC and LTV. So I know what the potential upside of this is. And I'm going to spend a little bit more time getting to know my prospect. It's not hard to learn about people on the internet anymore. It, You You're and I creep. both have relatively unique names. It probably takes 10 minutes to right. learn everything about each of us on the internet. That's right. This is not um, a challenge to anyone who's listening. I
1: have a unique name.
3: You do have unique We all out. have unique names. This is not a challenge to people listening, but figuring out what people are interested in. It's definitely a challenge.
1: If you send something to Lauren, (laughs) I I will definitely, will publish it in the mission for
3: sure. (laughs) You should. And if it's relevant, I will actually use it. But getting that information, saying, I spent that little bit of time getting to know you. I know you're connected to this individual and making that personal touch. And I've talked to, I've talked to less successful SDRs or sellers who are like, no, this is a numbers game. I know I need to send out 300 emails to get three Mm -hmm. responses. Mm -hmm. So what I'm going to do is just copy and paste and crank and crank and crank. And as the marketing leader, I've sat there going, actually don't, don't do that. Here's the people that you want to email their inbound leads rather than just copying and pasting Take five minutes, look the CIO up on LinkedIn, learn right. about her. She moved from this company to this company recently. This is what this means. Who do you know that knows her? How do you look up something about the new industry she's in? Spend a little bit of time. And you know what? You're not gonna get 100 emails out that day. Maybe you'll get 20 emails out, but you're going to get more people responding, more people paying attention. And then when you take that and combine it with a really rich ABM strategy... This is where we need to go as marketers. And the the days of sort of spray and pray just don't work anymore. Yeah. And
1: if you put that much thought into the campaign, you probably put a lot of thought into being a customer. Like Thanks. you're going to put a lot of thought into everything about the customer relationship. It's Absolutely. like it's, it's a signal to the buyer that it's like these people actually get it. We spent a lot of time talking
0: about, on the sales side, the three eras of sales. Mm-hmm. Era number one was about face-to-face, highly personalized, mm-hmm. but not very scalable. Era number two was automation and what you what you lacked in personalization you could make up for in scale. The mindset that you described, I got to do 300 emails today, mm-hmm. is really a relic of that, yeah. that mentality. Yep. But we live in a world where Uber can pick you up. It knows exactly where you are, can drop you off. Netflix can serve you the videos that you care about. Mm-hmm. And that is no longer tolerable to have some kind of a generic experience. So the third area which we're in now is personalized relationships at scale. It combines technology and the personalized touch in order to help you to become a true partner to the folks that, that you want to engage with.
3: I love that. I'm going to use personalized relationships at scale and I will do a better job accrediting you for creating that. All right,
1: there you go. There you go. Let's do a lightning quick lightning round presented by Pardot. Quick and easy, just like B2B marketing with Pardot. Number one, what app are you using on your phone that is most fun? I would say this is boring. I love the Wall Street Journal. That's not boring. That's great. Favorite vacation spot? Definitely Park City.
3: Favorite book you've read recently?
1: Bad Blood. Ooh. favorite podcast or show that you're watching. How awesome. I Built This.
3: Nice. Uh, worst advice you ever heard?
1: Make sure that
0: you get everyone's consensus before you go big. <sighs> Thing you're most excited about for
1: the future marketing? Tight relationship with sales. Man, that was a lightning round. Love it. Thanks so much, Justin. This was great. Awesome having you and uh, great to be at LinkedIn today with you. And uh, hopefully we'll talk soon. Thanks so much, guys.
3: Thanks.
2: Thanks for listening to this episode of Marketing Trends. Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce Pardot. World-class B2B marketers use Pardot to generate and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI at every stage of the sales cycle. Empower your marketing team to become revenue-generating superheroes and let Pardot's data analysis keep an eye on the bottom line. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast or click on the link in our show notes.